and this is Travis Agnew. Thank you for joining me for our New Testament survey. We are going down another week uh, as we are studying the New Testament and going through these 15 major narrative points to help you know the message of the New Testament better so that you can share the message of the New Testament better. And so today we are going into what is the fourth point of our uh, rundown, and it is uh, actually um, the disciples. And so, so far we've looked at incarnation, we've looked at preparation, we've looked at ministry, and now we're looking at the disciples because Jesus gathered a group of men, and this was pivotal to his entire uh, structure of teaching and reaching the world, was this group of 12 ragtag uh, individual guys who honestly, if you looked at them, they didn't have a whole lot to uh, go for. You wouldn't necessarily uh, take these guys' resume and think they'd make a great pastoral candidate. Uh, they really wouldn't make a whole lot of great candidates for a whole lot of things, but Jesus saw something in them, called them to himself, spent almost every waking and sleeping moment with them for three years, and now the entire world is different because of it. In fact, the very reason that you're watching this or listening to this on your mobile phone or computer screen or TV or whatever it is, is because what Jesus handed off to the disciples, the disciples handed off to their disciples, and the and it continued to go on from generation to generation, to disciple to disciple, from nation to nation, from uh, you name it. And now here we are, uh, based out of a church in Greenville, South Carolina, you're hearing from a guy by the name of Travis, who is telling you that this uh, path of discipleship worked for Jesus, and is the reason why uh, we're sitting here listening to, together today. And in fact, this is what he's called us to do. And we're going to talk a little bit more in a couple of weeks uh, about the Great Commission and what does it mean to make disciples. But first off, we're going to look at this, this uh, unique kind of uh, pivot that Jesus did as he starts his ministry. Or I guess this integral part of what he did was by gathering some people to himself. Now, I want to um, brag on a uh, just a mentor of mine that I've been able to reconnect um, with in recent months. Um, his name is Robert Coleman. And Robert Coleman wrote a book in the 1960s called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And at the height of the Billy Graham Crusades that were going all around the world uh, and reaching a lot of people, people were making decisions for Jesus. Evangelism was happening. He was concerned that discipleship wasn't happening. And so he began to study what was the master's plan of evangelism. And what he realized about the life of Jesus was is that it wasn't about just necessarily evangelizing some and then moving on to the next batch that he could evangelize. But the whole premise of the master plan of evangelism is Jesus's great strategy was spend all your time with a few men and multiply your efforts so that when he was gone, the ministry continued to go forward. In fact, one of the most uh, critical lines in that book, the master plan of evangelism, Robert Coleman says that uh, Jesus was not uh, interested in building the crowds, but building the men in whom the crowds would follow that through discipleship, Jesus was often removing himself from the crowds so that he could sit down with his disciples and unpack what was going on and teach them even further, because once he was gone, he wanted these men to carry on the work. So Robert Coleman wrote that book in 1960s. I would say it's one of the top three books that I would recommend every Christian reading. Uh, I think it is just so brilliant. It's so simple, though. I don't think there's an original thought in it, because he just looks at the master, at Jesus, and, this, and looked at what he did in that time of ministry and how he continued to allow these guys to learn under him, and then he would launch them out to do things as disciples. Um, I, I read that book when I was 18 years old. It changed my life. 
the way that I thought about ministry, the way that I thought about the church, about discipleship in general. When I was about 28, I was in seminary and actually had the wonderful privilege of he was a guest lecturer. He was in his 80s at that time. He came in and outpreached us preacher boys um, those days just in an unbelievable way. And then just recently, I reconnected with him and had some phone calls and even some Zoom uh, meetings with him. He is in his 90s now. Uh, I think he just turned 94. Uh, and he is, as we were discussing, um, just, you know, what was going on. And he said, well, you know, he's telling about different things about his life. But one of the things that he said was, he said, Travis, I'm having to start getting, um, you know, rides now to my appointments. And I'm thinking, uh, you mean appointments to what would he be getting appointments for? I'm thinking doctor's appointments, right? Uh, this is a, and a man in his 90s, and, and I'm sitting here, and, and I, I said, well, what are appointments for? He goes, well, my discipleship appointments. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, since my family doesn't think I need to drive anymore, I just have to get rides so that I can still make disciples. And so this 94, 95-year-old man is going and, and getting rides for the different appointments he has throughout the week. He has about three or four different groups of people and different individuals that he mentors and disciples still to this day because he believes so much in the ministry of Jesus that what he did was he invested everything he had in this group of disciples and they turned and went and did that with other men and that's why we're here today. So I wanna break down this master plan of discipleship. I wanna show you what Jesus did. I wanna identify who these 12 disciples were I think it's going to give you a better understanding of the, the ministry of Jesus. And then in the uh, next few weeks, we're going to look at the remainder of Jesus' life and then talking about the Great Commission, how he went and made disciples. But let's, let's dive into some of this to here today. Uh, the responsibilities, there's kind of this progression that takes place. Uh, when originally they start out, they start out as disciples. A uh, disciple means student or learner, okay? So in fact, um, you have in, uh, I would love for you to turn, uh, if you've got your Bible, uh, to Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is going to talk about what was it like for him to call these men to himself because they did start off as disciples. And once again, that word simply means disciple, it means student, it means learner. And in Mark 3, verse 13, I'm going to read through verse 19, it's going to show us a little bit about his strategy. It says, And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. He wanted them. Okay. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Onerges, which is the son of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, spoiler alert, who betrayed him. Um, so there's Mark. He, he tells them these are disciples that he calls out, but he's going to later call them apostles. Let me unpack what that means in just a second. I also want you to look at Luke chapter 6 for a moment. Luke chapter 6. Luke's going to describe this moment and going to hit a couple of different things, and we're going to pull these two passages together to explain to you what Jesus thought of when he called these disciples together. So in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued prayer to God. Let me just make sure you understand this. Jesus spent all night in prayer to God to make a decision of which out of all the hundreds of people who were following him, which 12 were going to be with him all the time. Now, it, I have to ask you this question. Do you think Jesus was unaware of what which disciples he was going to call? 
I don't think he was. I think he knew exactly which 12 disciples were going to be his from the foundation of the world. So why would Jesus spend an all night in prayer to make a decision? Because he's setting the example for us that if you have a major decision, you better put in the work. You better get on your knees. You might even have to stay up a little bit later to do this. And so it says he, he was out all night in prayer, verse 13. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Did you catch the way that's worded? He called his disciples, his students, his learners, and chose from them the 12. So what you need to understand is there is this larger group that sometimes in the gospel are called disciples, and then sometimes the disciples refer to just the 12. Sometimes they refer to the hundreds of people who followed him, and some they refer to just the 12. So in this, it says, okay, he, he called all of his disciples together, and then he starts saying, you, 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 you guys are going to be with me. It says, he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew's brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So here you go to see, once again, he calls them to himself, and the first thing he says, you are a disciple, you've been a student, you've been a learner, you've been in my classroom, okay, you've been sitting here listening to my lessons, but now I'm going to take you a little bit further, because in that progression, they move from disciples to apostles. So they become apostles, and apostle means messengers or sent out ones. So don't miss this, this is awesome, right? So there's a sense of he, they came to him at first, they learned, but then once they had learned, he sends them out. So they start as disciples, they end as apostles. They start as learners, they end as messengers. So the goal was not just for them to sit in the classroom all the time. No, no, no. Jesus was saying, with all this information you've been learning from me, now I'm launching you out, kicking you out of the nest, and now it's your job. And in fact, there's a certain place you even watch the life of Jesus. He does this amazing, but there is a sense in which he does these disciples as he goes this progression. Um, I'll do it and you watch. The next time you see a little bit further on, I'll do it and you help. And then later, Jesus puts them out and says, you do it and, and I'll help. I'll come along and clean up your mess. And then there comes a place in, in their lives where he says, you do it and I'll just stand back and watch. Jesus relinquishes opportunities of his own and eventually gives that out to them. So these men start as disciples, but they become apostles. And it appears as if they were disciples before Jesus asked them to leave everything and follow them. So I don't think that this was sort of unique to them, but all of a sudden they came in and then out of nowhere, this took place where they had to say, you know what? Uh, we don't know what to do. That, uh, uh, that all of a sudden Jesus walks up to them. They, they've never met him before. And they just say, he says, you want to follow me? It doesn't appear that actually happened. It seems like that Jesus knew them. They had been listening to him for a while. And at a certain point, Jesus says, all right, guys, you've been listening to me for a while. You've heard this enough. Are you ready? Are you ready to follow me and leave everything behind and follow me and, and have your life forever changed this world forever changed? Now, the, the goal, if you look at those responsibilities, if you look at the, what the steps were uh, going from Luke 6 and Mark 3, 13 and 19, there's really, uh, I guess, five kind of steps that goes through this. First one is that they were to come learn from him, sit under his teaching, listen to what he has to say. The next thing, though, was to leave everything behind. So as they began to hear the message of the kingdom, then he was going to call them to say, now, if you believe these words to be true, would you leave everything? Would you leave everything and would you follow me? 
And so one of the things that's beautiful about that, the Mark passage and the Luke passage also says that part of the calling to be a disciple was to be with Jesus. Can I just also say that still that's it. Uh, the calling that God has on our lives to follow Jesus is to be with him. And you can't follow Jesus if you're not around him, if you're not spending time in the word and in prayer and asking his spirit to guide us. There's also this um, opportunity to be trained. So once they learn from him, he's training them. He's giving them opportunities. And over that, that three-year span, they get more and more responsibility, more and more opportunities. There are certain times where he says, you guys go out and preach. I can't get to all these villages that need to hear this message. So Peter and Andrew, you go over to that city. And James and John, you go over to that city. And they say, whoa, but Jesus, everybody wants to hear from you. But he goes, yeah, but what if instead of me hitting all these cities, what if I send you guys out by twos? And now we've got six teams of evangelists rather than everybody depending on me. He had trained them. And now it's time for them to step out and just do it. And then that's where he, after he did it. He eventually he sent them out. Uh, on their own. And he stood back and he watched and even commented one time. He says, it was incredible. I, it was like, I saw Satan falling from the sky. Like you guys were just doing kingdom stuff and just doing damage to the control that he had over people's lives. You guys were doing an incredible thing. And so there is this progression. And I would just remind everybody here, I think that's a great progression for all of us to learn from Jesus. And then there is a sense where we begin to leave everything behind and say, there's nothing out of your jurisdiction in our lives, Jesus. And we want to be with you as much as we can be with you. We want to be trained so that, not that we get a degree, not that we can say, well, look how much information we've got. No, no, no. We're trained so that we can be sent out so that other people can be disciples of Jesus Christ as well. Now, as we look at the identities, here, here's the members of the 12. There were, as I've said before, hundreds of disciples of Jesus, but only 12 that he called out for specific service. So there's a big group, but only 12 that he called out for specific service. Within the 12, they did not all experience the same level of intimacy with Jesus. And what I mean by that is, um, you know some of these guys by name. You, you hear about Peter and James and John, but you don't hear a whole lot about Bartholomew. You don't hear a whole lot about Simon the Zealot. You might know their names, but in fact, if I gave you a quiz right now and said, give me the 12 disciples, you might go, uh, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Ringo, George. I don't know what you might say, right? But there's some of these guys you don't hear a whole lot of. They didn't all experience the same level of intimacy with Jesus. Let me ask you uh, to think through this. Do you remember who was with Jesus at the Transfiguration? It was Peter, James, John. Who was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Peter, James, John. So you mean to tell me that these guys got these special moments. And what about all the other guys? Well, they weren't there. So Jesus had the groups of hundreds of disciples. He narrowed down to 12. And then it seems like when he went on a trip and only three other people could fit in the car, right? Peter, James, and John came along and the other guys were left behind, which makes you have to wonder that Jesus was most likely criticized for playing favorites. There were probably people outside the 12 who thought they should have a better right than say Judas Iscariot, right? Especially later. Um, there are probably some guys within the 12 that thought, why is it always Peter, James, and John? But I will say this, it doesn't seem like Jesus is too concerned about that. He invests himself in the amount of time that he feels like is necessary for the mission, and he continues to go forward. The members of the 12, we know this, that the number of 12 was significant. Why is it 12? 
Well, if you've ever read the Bible, if you've studied scripture, you realize that 12 comes up a lot uh, throughout the Bible. The 12 disciples in the New Testament mirrored the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. So remember, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had his name changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons of Jacob, which turned into the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this number 12 is significant. When you go on throughout scripture, you realize that in, in Revelation, it says that the new Jerusalem has a wall with 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you mean to tell me that the new Jerusalem and the new heaven it has a, a wall with 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. We see that heaven is described as the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Okay, 144,000, that would be some kind of version of 12 times 12, right? So we, we're starting to see some of this kind of symbolism going on. Having his name and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. So these 12s have something significant to do. But here's the question that I want to ask before you even get into this, because some of you, once again, I've already mentioned one of their names, but you have to think. So if there's 12 uh, disciples that are named in the New Jerusalem, right, in the heavenly landscape, you have to ask the question, so is Judas on that list? Because uh, the question is, who's the 12th apostle there? Um, because if you know the story of Jesus, you realize that Judas uh, did something horrific, that most likely his name is probably not on that 12th wall. Um, Matthew 27, 5 says, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So Judas is responsible for betraying Jesus. He betrays the disciples. He betrays him with a kiss. All the men come in and arrest him. And then all of a sudden he's overrun with guilt later on and he gives them the money back. Uh, they don't want it. So he throws it at them. And then he goes out and he hangs himself. Most likely, Judas is probably not that 12th uh, name listed there in heaven. Some people think it's a guy by the name of Matthias. Matthias uh, was the guy who took Judas's spot in the book of Acts. In Acts 126, it says, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So when Jesus had departed, uh, ascended into heaven, he looks, they look around and go, hey, we only got 11 now because Judas just killed himself. What do we do? We've always had 12. We need a 12th guy. So what do they do? They put a lot of guys together. They narrow it down and they get down and they can't make up their decision between the last two. So they cast lots, which is, once again, it's a descriptive portion of scripture, but it's not a prescriptive. God's not telling you to gamble, take a um, roll the dice every time you have a major decision. It's showing their need in Acts chapter 1 for who is coming in Acts chapter 2, which is the Holy Spirit. But some may say, well, that 12th apostle was Matthias. Other people believe that it didn't fall to the guy who made that list, but the guy, the 12th person who was very significant in the rest of the New Testament, whose name would be Paul. Um, we read about him in Galatians 1.18, that after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. When um, Saul uh, is blinded by the light on the Damascus Road, receives the gospel, eventually changes his name to Paul, uh, is really the leader of the church in the second half of the book of Acts, and writes majority of the remainder of the New Testament. Most people would believe that he might be considered, at least in the heavenly landscape, as who is the twelfth disciple, um, of the twelfth apostle, because uh, through his testimony, 
he believes that he not only heard from Jesus, but he had a vision of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he relates that event where Jesus met with him. And so that is a defining uh, characteristic of an apostle, that it had to be someone who saw Jesus. And Paul said, no, no, no I saw him all right. Um, he, we had a different experience than most of us could ever classify. Um, and, and so some people would believe that. We will have to wait and see. Uh, but I know this, I know that the person who put those names there, that he knows best. Um, we, we see, though, that what's interesting about these identities, that in, in there, there's, there's these groups of the 12. But if you'll notice that within the biblical accounts, there are two disciples with varying names. What I mean by that is, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even the book of Acts, there are a list of disciples, but there are two disciples in those lists with varying names. They're not exactly always the same. And we're going to explain that here in a second. Um, also know this, each list is also unique concerning its ordering. So uh, there's 12 names, but uh, number two is not always in the same position, or number seven is not always in the same position. Yet, we're going to uh, see something very interesting, that the names and orders change, but they are always consistent in three groups of four. So, so get this for a second. Uh, the names that are one, two, three, and four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, those are always one through four. They're not always the same order. So in one place, it might be Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Sometimes it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It, the order might change, but those four are always together in that first group. And then the second group, it's always the same four there. And then the third group, it's always the same four. So it almost seems like that these groups that even though the order might change, that they're, they're stuck in somewhat teams. And you see Jesus at different times would send all the 12 disciples, and sometimes he sends smaller groups, and then he gets down to two. It seems like Jesus was someone who's very organized and very systematic about how he did things. It appears that every quartet, uh, one thing you know is that that always starts with the same name in every list, indicating that they may have served as a leader within the smaller group. So uh, let me explain again with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Andrew, James, and John will change order between two, three, and four. Peter's always at that number one position. Always at that number one position. Without fail, he's always at that number one position. Philip is always in the fifth position. And number nine, James, the son of Alphaeus, is always in the ninth position. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or Acts, all of them, always. Uh, Peter, uh, Philip and James are always in that position, and then all the other guys are kind of tucked in there as well. It seems like that these groups were kind of, you, you might say that they were teams, they were mission teams, they were ministry partners, they were accountability partners, who knows, but then also Jesus had identified who the leader of each of those groups were. So let me show you how this, this works here for just a second. If you look at um, Matthew 10, uh, Mark 3, uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, John is kind of sort of uh, scattered a little bit. And then in Acts chapter 1, you're going to see this. Once again, um, Simon, let me go back here. Simon, who's called Peter. Simon, whom he named, gave the name Peter. Simon, whom he named Peter. Simon, Peter, and Peter. Then we go, Andrew is here in the second position and Matthew and Luke. Uh, but he is in the fourth position and Mark and in the book of Acts. Um, we see that James, the son of Zebedee, is in that third or second position. Uh, John, uh, the brother of James, all these uh, four are always together. If you look at the next quartet, we have Philip, 
who's mentioned at the top and the fifth position in each of your list. In chapter six, you're going to see Bartholomew. I mean, sorry, number six, you see Bartholomew. Uh, and then we're going to see Nathaniel of Cana, which you go, wait a minute. What in the world is that? I'm so thankful that you asked, and I'm going to explain it here in just a little bit. But just know this. When you see that word bar, this will help you. Um, remember a time where Jesus said, uh, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. When he was talking to Peter, his name was Simon. Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah. Uh, Barabbas means son of the father, Abba. Bartholomew means son of Thalom. So most people believe that this was a nickname or a last name that he was known by the same way that some people call me Travis and some people call me Agnew or some people call me Trav. Most people believe that Nathaniel's name was Nathaniel, son of Philom, and that's how that comes out. Uh, we'll explain a little bit more, but you get the kind of picture, right? Uh, next is in that Thomas position, and it, uh, John calls him Thomas called the twin, gives us an interesting little info piece there. And then Matthew, who is the tax collector, rounds out that second quartet. And the third quartet, we always have James, the son of Alphaeus, is kind of mentioned in those lists there. We see Thaddeus or Judas, the son of James. And once again, we'll explain that. Uh, and John, it says Judas, but not Iscariot, just so you know. Um, and we also see that Simon the Cananean, or Simon is called the Zealot. And then at the 12th position, we always find Judas Iscariot. Now, uh, a couple things that I've got here, uh, just to, to point out. Uh, Nathaniel, once again, as I mentioned, is probably Bartholomew. He's closely associated with Philip. Uh, when you look at the word Canaanian here, uh, also know this, that it's a transliteration of the Aramaic word for zealot. So there's a good chance that's just another way of saying this. But also, if, if some of this bothers you to go, well, why couldn't they just keep their names the same? Once again, people call me a lot of different things. Sometimes it's nice, sometimes it's not, right? There's a lot of different things that I'm known by. I'm known by Travis. I'm known by Pastor. I'm known by Agdu. I'm known by Trav or T or different things like this people will call me. Um, so with this, there's nicknames. You see Jesus giving uh, uh, Simon a nickname, right? And Peter, uh, he even gives him a nickname Satan one time, but that's another story for another day. Um, also, you know this, that in Acts chapter one, there's a great example of how this happens. When they're trying to decide if Matthias is going to be that 12th disciple as mentioned here, uh, I'm going to read this verse for you, Acts chapter one, verse 23. It says, and they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And you go, wait a minute. I, th I thought they said they put forward two, but there's four names there. That's right. Joseph is also called Bar Sabbath, which is that son of Sabbath, uh, or who's also called Justice. That seems like a nickname. So here's one guy who's listed who has three names associated with him. So this is uh, common. So it's not like we have 13 or 14 disciples we're looking for here. We do have uh, all of our guys in this list, but they just have different nicknames, right? So let me continue on going here, uh, and we're going to look at specifics of these individual 12. We'll go through these kind of quick uh, just to get you an understanding of who they are. First off, we're going to start in that number one position, Peter. Uh, Jesus names Peter, which means the rock, indicating the type of person he wants him to be. So when he comes, once again, his original name was Simon. Um, and he calls him at one point, it says, uh, when Simon got it really, really right, Jesus says, uh, who do the people say that I am? And they give him all these lists of names. 
And he goes, but who do you say that I am? And Simon says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, um, because your father didn't reveal this to you, but your heavenly father did, basically, is what he's saying there. Um, he says, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And, and so what happens is, is that faith statement that Simon says that day is the, the rock, the foundation, the faith statement in Christ being the Messiah is, is basically that faith statement is working towards salvation. He goes, I'm going to build my church on that right there. And so one of the things that basically Simon, uh, he's renamed Rocky, uh, really is what this is. It's kind of, all right, that's a good rock of a statement there, Peter. And I'm going to call you that from now on. Now, it's interesting, if you follow the Gospels, one of the things you'll notice is that sometimes after Jesus has called, renamed Simon Peter, there are some times where Jesus will say, Simon. And Jesus used it when Peter was acting like his old self. Jesus would use it somewhat to um, confront Peter. So the, the, the most significant example is after Peter has denied Jesus, Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and then Jesus is uh, out there and he meets uh, Peter and the other fishermen out there fishing one day. Uh, he catches a big load of fish. They come uh, running in. Peter didn't even try to walk on water this time. He just jumps in, swims to shore. Jesus is there cooking uh, this uh, group of fish, which is this beautiful sight for me. And at one point he says, Simon, do you love me? He imagine uh, Peter going, <laughs> my name's Peter, remember you renamed me? I'm the rock, right? He goes, that's right. Simon, do you love me? And so what he's doing is, Peter, you, you went back to your old way, man, when you denied me. So I'm just going to call you by that. That's what I'm going to call you. That's why you're acting like, so Simon, do you love me? You, you know that I love you. Simon, are you sure that you love me? <laughs> Could you call me by my name? You, you know that I love you. Simon, Peter, are you sure that you love me? And so he, he does something. So a lot of times it's just interesting. Watch when Jesus calls Peter, Peter and when he calls him Simon, and you'll notice there's something going on there that Jesus is being even uh, very intentional in the word that he uses. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. So uh, we, we find Jesus finding him out there on the fishing boat. And sometimes that's where he wants to go back to at certain times. His brother Andrew is who brought him to Jesus. Uh, Andrew meets him first and, and brings Peter along. He is the leader of the group, and he is the dominant leader and the dominant preacher in the first half of Acts before that baton is passed on to the Apostle Paul. He is known for putting his foot in his mouth. That's why many of us really identify with Peter, because when he makes mistakes, oh boy, does he make them. Uh, and he makes them, and he makes them very known, uh, and yet uh, he is a pivotal uh, figure in our faith story as well. We next go to Andrew, who was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. That's right. A lot of these guys, it appears, were disciples of John the Baptist who eventually went along with Jesus. And it seems like Jesus was encouraging them to do so. In fact, sometimes John would say, hey, behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've been listening to me talk about him. No need to stay with me. Go ahead with him. And so Andrew was one of the original disciples of John the Baptist. He was a student under John. Then he moves to being a student under Jesus before he's an apostle of Jesus. He brought his brother, uh, Peter, to Jesus. Uh, and then he really is in the shadows for the most of the time. So you think about how much Peter is such an integral part of the New Testament, of the early church. And yet, it was a brother who came to him and said, hey, we found the Messiah. 
uh, you need to come with me now. And, and so, um, you know, a lot of times in the church, just let me give a side note to this. A lot of times we, we uh, really highlight a lot of those guys who have a kind of role like Peter does, where they're the ones standing in front of people and making bold statements and preaching and leading and whatnot. And can I just say that for every Peter, there's always an Andrew somewhere tucked along in the story that if it's not for them, a simple brother, come on with me. You got to come see what I see. Uh, history as we know it is forever changed. And I'm just saying, thank God for the Peters. Uh, that are out there preaching, but also thank God for the Andrews that are inviting, and we all have a role. Uh, we also see this. It's interesting to note that Andrew was the one who brought the boy with the loaves and fish to Jesus. Don't you see? This is like Andrew's job. Like, hey, here's this person. I found Jesus, and here's this person. Let me link the two of them together. He did it with Peter. He did it with the boy who has the little lunch, and it seems like uh, Andrew is just a natural connector. Let's go to James real quick. He is the son of Zebedee. Uh, so if it says uh, James and John, the son of Zebedee, that must mean that the father of Zebedee must have been important to be mentioned. So when they name drop him, most people would have known, oh, so the son of Zebedee, oh, wow, Zebedee must have been somebody important that uh, they would have known. He's given the nickname along with his brother, John uh, Bonerges, which means the sons of thunder. Now, why would they call them sons of thunder? Because uh, these are rough and tough fishermen. And in fact, um, Here's possibly one reason, if you look at the next point, it says, known for wanting to command fire to come down and consume people who do not receive Christ. So uh, one time when there are people who are not listening to the message, um, <laughs> they come up and say, hey, do you want me to call down fire from heaven and blow everybody up in Jesus? And I imagine Jesus is like, yeah, go for that. Please do. Um, they're, they're sons of thunder, right? These, these rough and tough guys. Well, notice this. His mother was also involved in trying to elevate their status in Matthew 21. Uh, their mommy comes up to the son of God and says, can my boys, they're special boys. Can they come sit on your right hand, left hand? I really would appreciate it. There's some really nice boys, Jesus. And uh, James and John seem like they can't keep their mother from even trying to get them a special seat in heaven as if walking with the um, centerpiece of heaven is not enough. Um, so they're always in this mo moment of being someone that they're not. And yet what happens in their life is just amazing because the time with Jesus will surely work that out of you. Uh, he was a fisherman who was in a business with his brother, John, also Peter and Andrew. These two sets of brothers seem like they're in a fishing business together. John uh, is known by the high priest in John 18, 15. So he gets a little special perks when Jesus' um, crucifixion is coming up that it seems like he has a connection. The high priest knows about John. Is that due to he's a personal contact? high priest? Is it because his father is Zebedee, who's somebody important? Or could he just be the preferred fisherman of the high priest? Maybe the high priest really loved that John was just a good businessman, a good fisherman, and he'd always go to him. We don't know, but it seems like that John uh, had some connections there. Um, and once again, we're, we're taking these context clues and trying to help understand it because the, the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not written about the disciples, but they play an important role. He is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John, when he wrote his own gospel of Jesus, he didn't name his, himself, but he would often refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, which in that type of language most likely means that Jesus and John were best friends. If, if Peter was Jesus' right-hand man as far as leadership, it seems like John was Jesus' best friend and companion. Like they just were, uh, he was his trustworthy person. In fact, uh, how trustworthy was he? Well, at Jesus' death, he entrusts his mother Mary to John's care. 
Now, if you think about something, uh, you have anybody in the world that you're about to die and you're responsible to take care of your mother because Jesus is the oldest. And it seems like that Joseph, is, um, his adoptive father, has died. Um, with this, out of all the people in the world that you could trust, when he says, I, I'm on the cross, I'm bearing the sins of mankind, God's wrath's coming upon me, and oh, by the way, John, from this point on, I want you to treat my mother like she's your own, and mother, I want you to treat this boy like he's your own. Uh, that shows how close these two were. This is, for all practical purposes, this is Jesus' will that he's given. Take care of mom for me. I trust you more than anybody. Um, and it's also known that John is the only disciple believed not to have a martyr's death. It's, it's, I mentioned that in John chapter 21, but uh, the, the history says that John was um, originally tried to be executed by throwing him into a vat of burning oil, and apparently he didn't burn. And so it scared people who did it, and so they threw him on an island called Patmos, which was an island like Alcatraz where prisoners kind of went to go and die, right? Um, and yet on that island is where he got a revelation from Jesus Christ about the things that were to come. And we are so very thankful that he hung around to the end to be able to get that revelation from Jesus that we could benefit from. Uh, we go to number five, uh, seems like the second leader of four, and we get to Philip. He is from Bethsaida, so he's most likely knew the four before him. They're kind of in the same area as one another. Um, Philip was tested at the feeding of the 5,000. We see John kind of, I mean, Jesus kind of pulling out some leadership things from him. He, he singles Philip out. Philip, a lot of times, seems to be the organizer. And a lot of times, he, Jesus, we find him uh, singling him out to be able to know something. We also see that the Greeks desiring to see Jesus came to Philip. So there's a group of Greeks that want to see Jesus, and they come to Philip. So Philip seems to be in connection with that group of people in that region. So he seems to be a leader, once again, an organizer of some sorts. Uh, it also says that Philip desired to see the Father in John 14. Jesus is talking about the Father. <laughs> Philip goes, well, just show him to us. Or, I mean, we got to understand a lot of this better if you just show us the Father. And Jesus says, have you been with me this long and you haven't seen it? You, you don't get it, do you? Uh, you're not just dealing with a prophet here, Philip. You're dealing with God in the flesh. Uh, we look at Bartholomew once again. This is not a name. It means son of Philom. It's what that means. So he's most likely Nathaniel Bartholomew, Nathaniel, son of Philom. And Philom most likely, maybe it was somebody important, or it may have just meant that, hey, we got to distinguish him because there's a lot of those guys out there. Uh, he was originally skeptical of Jesus. And John 1, he's like, what, he's out of Nazareth? Nothing's good about coming out of Nazareth, right? And yet Jesus said of him, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Um, it seems like Jesus calls out Nathaniel Bartholomew in a unique type of way and sees him in a place that, and uh, it seems like he's very overwhelmed at the fact that Jesus knows all of these specifics about where he was sitting and what tree he was under and whatnot. And that while Bartholomew thinks he's checking out Jesus, Jesus has been checking out him for a long time before then. We get to Thomas. He is obviously always known as Doubting Thomas, but also he was also twin Thomas. Uh, it's mentioned he had a twin. I just have to think, I wonder if Thomas ever tried to get his twin brother to, hey, you go to the disciples meeting, see if Jesus can point you out, right? This is just my imagination running a little bit. But it's known he was a twin. Uh, he is known for doubting Christ's resurrection and desiring proof. Uh, it seems like even throughout this, there's more opportunities where Thomas struggles a little bit of just being unsure of things, being skeptical. And I think it's very interesting that when Jesus did uh, come back from the grave, if you've defeated death, if you can walk through a door that's locked, 
you would think that Jesus would know that he waited for a moment and all of a sudden Thomas isn't in the room. The rest of the disciples are there, but not Thomas. Like, why would he choose at that point? I think he knew he waited for Thomas to leave, came in, and then left right before Thomas came in. And Thomas couldn't believe it. Unless I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe it because Jesus is still discipling Thomas's specific needs in that moment. I'm telling you, it's just mind-boggling. If you look at who Thomas was, that Jesus waited till he left because Thomas's biggest issue was is that he just struggled um, believing things unless he could see it. And Jesus was just bent and determined. I'm going to teach this boy. And so uh, it's this beautiful, intentional, distinctive way of how Jesus were discipling each of these individuals. We look at Matthew, last guy in that second quartet, that second team. Uh, Matthew was a hated Jewish tax collector who left everything to follow Jesus. So as a Jew, they're living in Jewish territory, but Rome has taken over. So now Romans want taxes for Jewish people living in Jewish land that they've taken control over. And Matthew is a ethnically Jewish man taking taxes from his Jewish countrymen for the system, for the government, for the man, right? So he's hated. Any, any Jewish tax collector is, is like uh, he's a traitor to the country. Uh, different places. He's also known as Levi or the son of Alphaeus. Um, and with his connections, though, he was a constant source of bringing sinners to Jesus. I love Matthew's story because the first thing that happens when he leaves that tax collector's booth and he makes everything right, he grabs a bunch of his friends together and brings them to the house. And what happens next shows us a lot. The Pharisees go, I cannot believe that you guys are hanging out or Jesus, you're hanging out with these group of sinners. Well, that's all Matthew knew. Why? Because all the Jewish countrymen have walked away from him. And now he's at a place that all he has are the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. Those were his friends. And yet he consistently brings them closer to Jesus because the life that he's had changed by Jesus, he believes they can have as well. We come to the last quartet of disciples and we get to that uh, ninth position of James, the son of Alphaeus. And once again, um, we don't really know anything about James or Alphaeus, but his father must have been important to distinguish him from others, or maybe it's just to distinguish him from the other James. But Alphaeus probably most likely was a guy that some of these books would have known if he's listed that often. So maybe his dad owns a piece of land. Maybe he was a government leader. Who, who knows? But a lot of people knew who Alphaeus was. His mother's name is Mary, and she is actually one of the Marys uh, at the cross. If you didn't realize there's a lot of guys in the New Testament named James. There's a lot of guy, a lot of ladies in the New Testament named Mary. Uh, but Mary, um, wife of Alphaeus, uh, mother of James, uh, she is one of the ladies that is so true to Jesus. And I will say this, she was a disciple of Jesus, just not one of the 12. So true to Jesus that she is listed as one of the women who were staying faithful to him even at the cross. Uh, this James is often referred to as James the Less or James the Younger. Uh, he really serves in the shadow to the more prominent James within the uh, list of disciples. But apparently he's somebody because um, Jesus put him, it seems like, in a, a place of leadership. Uh, also at the 10th position is a guy by the name of Thaddeus. We know that he is the son of a, another guy named, guess what, James. Um, in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, um, his other name that's mentioned, we don't know a lot about Thaddeus, but 
other about his names and some family connections. His other name is Judas, uh, which they had obvious reasons for probably for using an alternative name. Uh, Luke six sixteen and John fourteen twenty two. He's named Judas, um, which once again you can see Thaddeus Judas. Some connections there uh, linguistically. Uh, but what you got to think of is probably after Judas, there weren't a lot of other people named Judas after that point. And in fact, why you see some people who were named Judas, but also called this, you probably started using nicknames because Judas was not a name that you wanted to keep. And in fact, I have yet to meet someone who named their child Judas in the last, I don't know, 2000 years or so. So maybe it'll happen, but uh, normally a name, uh, somebody's reputation can truly ruin a name. Um, we get down to that 11th position and we find Simon the Zealot. Zealot means someone who's zealous, that they're a little obsessive about something, but especially zealots were known in Jesus' times as being political revolutionaries. So Simon, as a Jewish man who was a zealot, a political revolutionary, who is he wanting to revolt against? The Roman government. Jewish man in a Jewish land that Rome is taking control of, wanting taxes given to them, and he is a political revolutionary, Simon the Zealot. Now, don't miss this. Think about the dynamic with Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector working together, okay? Now, um, we live in a time that's just a little bit tense regarding political divides. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but you can imagine, for example, that... Uh, I, I don't know if you if you got somebody that's a Republican and Democrat and put them in a Bible study right now, which probably is happening, right? But you don't speak about it. But just just imagine if if we could for just a moment, like what if we could have a Bible study in a small group with Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and and like wouldn't that be awesome, right? Like you would just think there's no way they could do that. They're so divided politically. There's no way they could see eye to eye. This is Simon and Matthew. This is serious. Um, division between these two. This is betrayal and revolutionary zealous, zealots. I mean, you, you talk about it. these are extreme people. And Jesus is praying all night. He's like, Matthew, come here. And Simon, come here. And you have to imagine there was a place where they had to work some stuff out. I don't know if Jesus is making them do trust falls with each other. I, I, I got no clue. But I do know this. This was something that was so extreme. And yet Jesus is going, that's secondary stuff compared to the primary stuff of the kingdom and a biblical truth. And you're going to get over it and you're going to follow. And they work together. And that is a beautiful testimony, folks. And maybe some of us could lead the charge and, and leading these days as well. I'll leave it at that. And then we finally get to the number 12 position. Judas Iscariot, who is somewhat known, but not for good reasons. He was the treasurer for the disciples, but would also take funds from the group, as is mentioned in John 12, 6. So at some point, Judas seems as the most trustworthy person with money, that he needs to be the guy trusted with money. Seems like he was taking funds, though, from people who were giving offerings to support the ministry of Jesus. He was taking some for himself. It just shows us a little bit that if there's 12 guys and Judas seems to be the most trustworthy and he turns out to be the worst uh, of them, um, you have to be really careful about appearances and people who use flattery and people who seem like they have it all together because sometimes they don't. At some point, it's mentioned in the Gospels that Satan enters him. This is demonic. He has given himself over. Some people believe that he had um, just practical reasons or, the, or kind of philosophical reasons for why he did what he did. Um, when I give you an example at one point where uh, Mary 
gives that expensive vial of perfume out, you know, just a huge amount of money and uses it to anoint Jesus preparing for his death. And Judas is like, how could you waste all that, right? Um, and it's just like he, he never gets it. And so there, there's this point where he kind of turns. Some people think that Judas thought that Jesus was going to be that Messiah, that military leader that came in and sort of took over. And when he saw he wasn't going to be that, he did this. But this is this could be practical. This could be his thought process, philosophical thing. But this is satanic. This is demonic. What's happening is that Judas kind of aligns with Satan's agenda. It is an interesting thing, though. Um, when you look at uh, the Last Supper, there's this beautiful kind of thing that some of the gospel authors point out that I overlooked for years. But when Jesus even says, hey, one of you is going to betray me, um, Peter says, is it me, Lord? You know, I, I couldn't do that, could I, Lord? And Judas says, is it me, Rabbi? Now you go, what's the big difference there? Lord, Rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. So follow this. There's a difference between Jesus being your Lord or your teacher. There's a lot of people who say Jesus is my teacher. I've learned from him, but I've not put that into application where he is the Lord of my life. Folks, just because you know the words of Jesus, just because you know the truth, just because you've read the Bible, just because you've memorized it, you still can be Judas Iscariot in the midst of it if all Jesus is to you is a teacher and yet never Lord. And that's what happened. Jesus was a teacher to Judas, but it never turned into this lordship where he obeyed. And so Satan enters him. It's known that he betrayed Jesus with a kiss for 30 shekels of silver that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Yet when he was overwhelmed with guilt, he tries to return money and then hangs himself. This is a shocking, shocking um, change in the story. But for us to know that one of the things that we have to realize about these disciples, that, that so as we look through those 12, um, I, I, I want to put this out. You don't really notice any guys who went to the, the local Jewish seminary. You don't look at anybody who seems like they're, they're just gifted, overwhelmingly like, yeah, that's the guy that we need to use. Jesus' calling of the disciples displayed the attribute of grace, right? Because when you look at the unique group of men that he chose, there isn't anything special about them. In fact, if you were on a pastor search committee and drafted up a list of qualities you were looking for in a spiritual leader, you would probably list out things that none of these men possessed. They weren't obvious choices, and yet they were Jesus's choices. Due to that reason, they would develop into what Christ had called them to be. The old saying is very true here. Jesus doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And Jesus showed not only through his teaching, but through this example Get a group of people together, give everything you got to them, pass them on, send them out, and watch not kingdom addition take place, but watch kingdom multiplication take place. So this is the picture of the disciples in the ministry of Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about his associations with two groups of people as well that really um, drove a whole lot of the message of the New Testament. But I want to pray for us here uh, today. So, Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to teach um, this uh, truth about the disciples. Even when I was putting these uh, notes together years ago, I just remember how um, this is stuff that I just never knew about each one. And it forced me to go in a little bit more into the fact of how you would call these men to learn from you, but then eventually to be sent out. And God, that's what you're calling us to do, to learn, but not just to sit here in our knowledge, but to be sent out to teach others as well. In the same way, God, you didn't call those people who other people would have thought would have been wise candidates, but yet you transformed them into a bunch of world changers. God, 
would you cause us to see that if we have things in our past or things that we feel like are inabilities in us, you are not hindered by anything on our account, but you work with the least and the unlikely all the time. So God, raise us up, call us out, use us, oh God, so that we can be discipled and make disciples as well. Lord, it is to that end that we pray, that we uh, learn, and that we are sent out. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See you next week.